Well, if you've uh, been studying through our passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and uh, you feel like I beat you up a little bit about the topic of marriage, you'll be thankful because this passage today is not about marriage. So, can I get an amen? All right. Except it really is kind of a little bit about marriage, if, if I'm being honest. Um, because why would Paul insert it in the middle of chapter 7? But to say all that, let me just begin by uh, welcoming you and thanking you for being here today. Um, when I was a kid growing up, uh, my desire was always to explore the unknown. That's just who I am. That's how I'm bent. Um, the Lord uh, continually gave me that passion and desire. Uh, he placed me in a home of five acres of land, and, and so I had a lot of places to go. And uh, that just became kind of a theme for me as a young man, um, wanting to be outdoors, wanting to, to be out and about. Um, I do like the comforts of home, um, but I am by all means an explorer. And uh, so that became a problem for me when I became a young man and an adult because my desire was always to go and leave where I was. Uh, I never envisioned myself being in the city of Memphis for very long once I got out of the house. And uh, then the Lord um, had another plan for me. He had another uh, place in, in my life uh, outside. He, had a, he, had, he was going to ground me and anchor me to this city. And uh, I will be honest, I, did, I kind of fought that kicking and screaming. Um, I landed at the University of Memphis um, and I thought, well, maybe I'll marry a young girl that her family lives elsewhere and I'll just end up, you know, we'll, we'll live with her family. I, I married a girl where her family lived here in Bartlett. And, um, and my family obviously remained in Bartlett. And I began in the banking industry and, and worked in banking for many years and never transferred there and went to seminary and thought, well, maybe after seminary I'll get a church and ended up working in a church in Bartlett and now planning a church in Bartlett. And so you get the idea. And that, that spirit's still in me. And I fight that spirit constantly knowing that it's not about what I desire. It's just about what the Lord has for me and where he's placed me. And this is kind of Paul's message for us today. I want you to consider today the providence of God and the way in which he has placed you and planted you here right now today. Where you live, the street you live on, the city that you live in, the job, the family, all the things by His sovereignty and His providence that has ordained and planted you where you are. It's not an accident. There's no coincidence. And we oftentimes, as people, get a little agitated and a little uncomfortable and a little restless with that idea. And I think Paul's message here is for the church in Corinth, as well as it is today, as all of God's Word, that we need to consider God's providence and be faithful in where God has planted us. This is the message that we need to hear today. See, as a pastor, I've watched people move into the city, and a lot of times it's mainly for work-related circumstances, and they rarely settle in. They become... Uh, they're oftentimes very nomadic, and because their jobs have allowed them or forced them to move, they, they don't connect, they, they, they are just here, they exist, and then they are looking forward down the history of time to where they're going to go next. 
And oftentimes what that does is it prohibits them from really being used faithfully by God for His glory where they are now. Because they're looking forward in advance to where they want to be. And they aren't flourishing where God has planted them. And so with this mindset, I think we oftentimes can see people miss what God is doing now. They miss what God has planned for them in their current circumstances. And so if this is a fresh reminder for us from the Apostle Paul um, and a challenging word for the church in Corinth as much as it is today. Now, as a review, we have been talking about marriage in chapter 7. And I'm going to connect the dots for us as to why this is so important. But we've looked at the sanctity and the permanence of marriage. What it means to be uh, married and and faithful in marriage as as God's people. To see God's good design of marriage and to value that and to understand that no matter what a pressing culture of of evil and and worldliness might say, God designed it good, the the vows of, of husband and wife, He designed that well and good and perfect and therefore we must strive to accomplish the marriage that He seeks for us or He desires for us. This is our purpose in the world. To be people who are husband and wife honoring the Lord. And that's honoring the Lord as husband and wife no matter the circumstances. For the people in Corinth, that became people that dealt with uh, conflicts between husband and wife. And Paul reminded them not to allow the conflicts to lead to divorce, but to instead value permanence. And to, to, to bring glory to His name in the way that you uh, live with your spouses. But then other situations arose in Corinth where there were people that were forced to get divorced. As I said before, that if you were a slave and you were married to another slave, you had no say-so what your spouse was going to do or where they were going to go. And oftentimes the church had to deal with these kind of situations. And Paul had to instruct the hearts of these believers there. And, in, and of course, we also last week looked at what it meant for a believer to be married to an unbeliever. And how challenging and how difficult it would be for believers to, one, maybe come to Christ while the spouse did not believe in Christ. Or one who believes in Christ and comes to realize that their spouse is not a believer is not a true follower of Jesus Christ. How do we wrestle with and, and live such holy lives in those situations? And the theme of that was permanence. Seek marital permanence. Do everything you can unless your spouse seeks divorce, seeks separation, wants to leave, wants to quit. You strive to do everything you can for reconciliation and for peace. And so now Paul inserts this more general and more broad situation for us, this exhortation of what we must do to be faithful where God has planted us. Now for the uh, immediate context, this is, hey, if God has placed you in a marriage where you're married to an unbeliever, just stick it out and be faithful to where God has planted you. That's not an accident. That's exactly what God wants you to be providentially by His power and His grace. Don't be surprised. He's the King and ruler of all things. He's ordained those things to be. 
Now, we know that divorce isn't caused by God, that evil causes, uh, or, or sin leads to evil, and evil leads to divorce. But that doesn't mean God's out of control of those things. Instead, we trust in the great plan and purposes of a sovereign God who rules all things so that we don't have to lay our head at night on the pillow and wonder what's going to happen because God's out of control. God's not out of control. He's the ruler and king of all. And we can trust Him. And because we can trust Him as our king, then we know that He is bringing about His good purposes for us. We just have to be rooted and grounded in Him and be faithful to where He has planted us until He moves us. Because the truth is, is that this message is not that God's going to keep you here all the time. The message is simply just be faithful while you're here and He'll move you somewhere else possibly by His good plan. And so I want us to look at three points today. Firstly, as I've kind of introduced, a clear doctrine. We are planted by God's providence. Now, some theological terms for you today. Number one, God's sovereignty, His supreme and absolute and total rule over all things. This is His authority. This is His power. This is His majesty, all summed up into the sovereignty of God. God does not operate in a democracy. He operates in sovereignty. He is our Lord and our King. We are His servants. Paul will even say we are the slaves of Christ. And if you reject that, if you rebel against that, that's fine. You can deny God's sovereignty until one day God reminds you how sovereign He is. He will remind you. He will show you that He's King. So the sovereignty of God is His rule and reign. His will and His his sovereign will or His sovereign plan is the way in which God ordains all things to happen by His good purposes for His plan, not our plan. See, I wanted to go and I wanted to explore and I wanted to travel and I wanted to leave and God's plan was, no, Memphis is good for you, Pastor. Memphis is good for you, Dad. Memphis is good for you, husband. This is exactly where you need to be. So it's not about my plan. It's about the Lord's plan and purposes. And how amazing is it? Like a composer who literally assembles every note on a page for every instrument in the symphony to uniquely and purposely and beautifully come together in harmony to make this musical composition that we could all enjoy. That's what God's doing in His plan. So we have His sovereignty, we have His purpose and His plan, and then we have His providence. This is how He does it all. He, he ties it all together. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology book says he defines uh, God's providence in this way. God is continually involved in all created things in such a way that He, one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties that He created them. We would say that God's providence is also His sustaining us. Number two, He cooperates with those created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And finally, three, He directs. He directs or He governs them to fulfill His purposes. 
This is what Paul introduces us to, this doctrine, this clear doctrine in verse 17. Look at this. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one or each person, as the Lord has called each one in this manner, let him walk, and so I direct in all the churches. So you need to pick up on two words there. Number one, the Lord assigns. This is His providence. His assignment for us. The very mission and the very plan that God has for us in this world is designed for His glory and laid upon us as our assignment. God, how is it that you want me to glorify you in this moment in time with these people that you have surrounded me with in my church, in my home, in my workplace? This is my assignment. I don't need to think about another assignment. I don't need to think about another place because that's not where you have me right now. This is where you have me, Lord. This is my assignment. So for Paul and the Corinthians, their assignment in particular was men and women who are married in these unique situations. This is your assignment. Be faithful. Carry on the mission for God's glory without hesitation, without discontentment. Be faithful to what I have called you to do. And he shows the distinction of that assignment. So that you and I have these unique ways and paths in which God has led us down, that He has guided and directed us each situation and circumstance. Circumstances that bring tears to our eyes or joy into our heart that we oftentimes struggle to want to remember or think about. And yet those circumstances and those calamities and distresses are still the very providence and design of God so that we might grow in our understanding and knowledge of Him. It's not an accident. My former pastor used to say, and I don't think he coined this phrase, there are no accidents, there's only acts of providence. That's what God is doing, working and directing, and you have an assignment in that plan. You have an assignment, that is, if you've been called by God to salvation. That's the second word you need to understand. Notice, only, he says, as the Lord has assigned to each one, well, the prelude is, as God has called each one. Paul's word for calling is always a calling of salvation. God taking lost and dead people spiritually and bringing new life to them. What we call uh, the the great doctrine of regeneration. The conversion of of being dead to sin and bring new life cast upon us, injected into us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're like Lazarus coming out of the grave, dead in our, our laying on the slab of concrete, and, and Jesus speaks our name, and we are awakened to new life in Christ. That is Him drawing us to Himself. Now, we don't, we don't experience that way. We always look backward and see how dead we were in sin. We look backwards and see how lost we were. All the evil thoughts continually in our mind, the the deceitful heart that we possessed, and how God changed us. Now, if you grew up in the church, that may may be a a slow, gradual change. That may be a a continual uh, move and work of the Holy Spirit. 
Or for some of us, God radically saves us as adults where people are like, I don't even know who you are anymore. And they actually said those words to us. Which only brings a smile to our face because we didn't know who we were either as we looked in the mirror. So God has to first call us to get an assignment from Him. We first have to belong to Him. And so in God's good plan by the working of the Holy Spirit, we are called from darkness into marvelous light. And so as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So consider your calling. Has the Lord Jesus Christ saved you? Have you been changed and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you are a new person in Christ? And in so then, consider your assignment and how you might glorify God in that assignment. Consider Joseph. Joseph, the famous Old Testament hero of Egypt. It's one of the great stories of the Bible. It should be a motion picture. He told his brothers who sold him into slavery out of jealousy at the end of the story that what they intended for evil, God purposed for good. That God allowed these situations of, 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 of treachery and lies to fall upon Joseph only to use Joseph for, in mighty ways to preserve life. And not just any life, but life of one of the greater nations of the world at that time, Egypt. Pagan people. Why? So that God's purposes would be revealed in a pagan nation so they might see the glory of God and so that God's people might be preserved. Look at Genesis chapter 45, verses 7 through 8. It'll be on the screen. Joseph told his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth. What does remnant mean? That is a piece, a slice of God's people that will remain throughout history until Jesus comes. If it wasn't for the remnant in Egypt that was preserved by Joseph during the famine, there would never be Jesus. There would never be Jesus. So while we acknowledge the the, the fact that, that Egypt would see the glory of God with Moses and that Egypt would see the glory of God with Joseph, we also know that while Egypt was experiencing the glory of God, Israel was being preserved by God. Why? So that we could have a Messiah, so that we might have forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ our Lord. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by great deliverance. Now therefore, he says, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now we, if we know the story of Joseph, we know the horrible things that happened to that man. We understand the calamity and the distress and the blessing and the, and the glory that this man received. And Joseph, at the end of the story, was willing to reflect upon that and give God the glory for accomplishing His purposes and the assignment that had been given to him. 
with a forgiving heart. He was loving his brothers and weeping over his brothers, acknowledging God's good plan. Regardless of the famine, regardless of the treachery, regardless of the lies and the sexual sin that Joseph had to experience, he knew and saw God was preserving his people and he was using Joseph to accomplish it. And so, man, I just... I can't help but get excited about thinking how God is using you and how God can use you where you are in the assignment that He's given you. Because He wants to. What are you waiting on? What are you waiting on to do what God's called you to do? Be faithful and and be active and, and, and dream big in what God has called you in ways to serve Him and do it with all the faithfulness in your heart. Even if you're the wife of an unbelieving husband or the husband of an unbelieving wife or a husband that's young in in, in marriage and struggling just to do what needs to be done as a husband, just be faithful in the assignment God's given you. So the clear doctrine is providence. Secondly, a clear identity. You are the Lord's servant wherever. Look at verses 18 through 23. Paul gives us two examples here. This is where he kind of stretches out and zooms out from the idea specifically of marriage. He doesn't even give us an example of marriage. Instead, he gives us a cultural and a social example that he was seeing in the the culture, in the church, whereby people were forgetting who they belong to, who their identity is in. And so he has to remind them. He says, was any man called... There's that word called again. So we could say, was any man saved when he was already circumcised? He is not then to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called or saved in uncircumcision? He's not to be circumcised. And then he says something really strange to the audience and powerful to us. He says, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandment of God. The first illustration Paul gives is speaking to Jews and Gentiles. The uncircumcised were the Gentiles, the circumcised were the Jews. And these people, church, were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And they had to wrestle with, well, what do I do here? Do I discount my Jewishness? Do I reject my Gentile heritage? I mean, there's all kinds of applications that trickle down from that. My parents are Gentiles. Do I stop talking to them? Do I stop uh, going to the the Paschal service and the Paschal uh, supper that, that, that we celebrate at Passover? How does this work? Well, we know for the Jews and the Gentiles, their beliefs had to change, but it didn't mean that they changed culturally. They, they kept their culture. And their culture is important. And that's fine. I'm Italian. So if you serve me spaghetti at your house, I'm going to have a cultural problem with that. Because most likely, it's not like my grandmother's spaghetti. And I'm going to graciously eat it, and I'm going to have a smile on my face, and I'm going to just be as full of mercy and love, but it's just not going to be the same thing. Culturally, we're going to disagree on what spaghetti really is, especially if it's in one lump and it doesn't move on the plate. Okay? Just a tip. But what Paul is trying to help the Jews see 
is that when your identity is in Christ, your culture does not overwhelm your identity in Christ. It becomes subservient to your identity and your union with Jesus. So if you're living in such a way that your circumstances and, 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 and your culture begin to override who you belong to in Christ, then you've got them backwards. It's not about the culture, it's about the belonging to Christ that matters. So you can retain culture, but when, when your retaining of culture in, interacts with and conflicts with your relationship with Christ and His people, then you've got a problem. Because the truth of the matter is, Paul's saying, retain your Jewishness. Continue to be uh, Gentiles, but don't worship in the same way because your beliefs have changed. We're not, we're not asking you to discount these things. Be faithful to the commandments of God, as he says. Now again, if you're a Jew, you're confused at this. You're confused because circumcision was commanded by God. And Paul is using circumcision here as a reminder to say, this is what uh, the cultural um, entrance into the, uh, the, the covenant family was. You were circumcised, but your, circumcised, your circumcision did not grant you faith. It was a sign of your faith. So really the true commandment is about what God has called you to do, to believe in Him, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not about circumcision if you have no faith in God and belief in Him and faithfulness to Him. So Paul circles the wagons, and in verse 20, it's kind of a summary statement. Each man must remain in that condition which he was called. And then he goes again to... um, The second illustration. So he's dealt with Jews and Gentiles. The second illustration is the slave and the free man. He says, were you called while being a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're you're able to become free, then do it. For he who has been called in the Lord while a slave is a Lord's free man. Likewise, who, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. You see what Paul's doing? It's about identity. If you were a slave or a free man or a Jew or a Gentile, none of those things matter when it comes to a relationship with Christ because you have been transported from the lowest form of society and the lowest form of culture in certain respects for people and you have been transported to the kingdom's palace sitting at the table with the Lord as His son or daughter. And so Paul is he's hitting all the high points here. He's dealing with the cultural aspects. He's dealing with the social aspects as slaved and free men. Slavery in Paul's day wasn't the evil slavery that we know of today. Sure, there was some forms of it, but it was very much a a vocation. A vocation where you were educated and cared for. It wasn't the atrocities that we understand in the last 100 years. And so Paul's command to the slave who became a Christian 
was don't get so caught up in, your, in the fact that you're now a believer in Christ and still a slave. Instead, use your slave enslavement to glorify God where you are. Think about the power of that. Think about the power and, 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 the, and the opportunity that you have in the community of other slaves to proclaim the glory of God in the midst of that situation. And that's what he's speaking to here. He says that again in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. Recognizing slaves will exist in all things, he says, slaves. Those who are your masters on earth, uh, he says, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, slaves, do, uh, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. It is the Lord's Christ whom you serve. Paul understood the possibility of a slave becoming free was not very likely. So he's calling and challenging these slaves who were a part of the church in Corinth to use that situation and providence in their life for God's glory. And, and similarly, if they were freed men. If you want to be so haughty and, and so arrogant as free men, be reminded that you're really not free. You actually belong to Christ. So your freedom isn't as free as you think it is because you are the Lord's servant. Or as Paul says, doulos, it is literally you are the slave of Christ. And this is a powerful testimony for us. Because we as a culture find our identity in in what we do, not who we are. I see it all the time in the construction world. If you can craft a beautiful piece of furniture or, or build a beautiful building, that's not your identity. People can't value you based upon something that could be destroyed in an earthquake. How quickly would your identity go away? Your, your, your value in life should be who you belong to. And most importantly, that is who you are in Christ. Not some temporal thing that can be destroyed or taken away. What a powerful message to people who are widows today. If you find your value in who you are married to, and that's your only identity, widows feel that the hardest. Family members who pass away, if if we are so connected with those whom we love and then they leave us, if that is our true identity as the husband or the wife of this person or the son or the daughter of this person, then we will feel great remorse because we are not truly finding our identity in Jesus. And He has taken away the very thing that we were finding our identity in. So He reminds us in verse 7, chapter, tw- or chapter 7, verse 23, you were bought with a price. Second time He said this, you've been redeemed, church. You're no longer a slave. You are free. You no longer are in bondage to sin. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your Lord and Savior. So be satisfied in Him. Find your identity in Him. And in all things, serve Him faithfully, which is the final point of my sermon. 
A clear doctrine is God's providence. A clear doctrine is God's providence. A clear identity. The Lord's, you are the Lord's servant wherever you go. And finally, the clear command, serve the Lord always. In verse 17, verse 20, and verse 24, Paul has three sections of repetitive verbiage and commands for the church. In 17, I skipped this earlier on purpose, he says, As each one is called, in this manner, let him walk. Let him walk. Paul's usage of the word walk is how we conduct our lives as Christians. So your assignment, you have been called to be faithful in the walk that you've been given. With those circumstances, how are you living out your Christian life honoring the Lord Jesus in the walk that you have been given? Some people these days want to spice it up and call it your spiritual journey. And I'm your spiritual coach. That's not going to happen. Walk worthy of the manner by which you were called. That's what Paul says. He has called you to Christ, therefore be faithful to Him. Turning away from sin, turning away from worldliness, and serving Him faithfully with your last dying breath. And Paul directs this truth for us as he did, he says, all the churches. Just as a side note, that is a powerful statement in the Bible there as Paul shows us in this this letter to the Corinthians that he is speaking these and transmitting these truths not just to this church, but to the churches. The existence of multiple churches in which Paul is overseeing and shepherding as the one who started these things. So Paul says that we must walk. Now verse 20, I've already read it. Each man must what? Remain in the condition which he was called. It doesn't mean remain forever. What remain means there is be faithful. Continue to do steadfastly what God has called you to do in the condition that you've been called. The condition might be slavery, the condition might be divorce, the condition might be widowhood, the condition might be a trade, a vocation, whatever that might situation might be. But the emphasis is the condition in which you were called to Christ in salvation. Your life is now different. Be faithful in your circumstances. Our past and our present sufferings cause us distress. And oftentimes that distress is a distraction if we dwell on the condition by which we are called and not the calling that led to or or that found us in a condition. Our circumstances distract us and consume us and we forget that our identity is in the Lord. We're called to walk faithfully. We're called to obey the commandments of the Lord. So I'd like to give you three encouraging exhortations of how you and I can be faithful in walking in the condition or in the circumstances or in the providence of the Lord in our lives today. Number one, be content in your circumstances. Be content. I don't know the hearts of those in Corinth, 
But I know that my heart has a, sens- a sinful propensity to be content- discontent in my circumstances. But our commitment to Christ and to the Lord calls us to see His good hand of providence, to understand that no matter what lays before us and what came behind us, that He is guiding and directing everything that has occurred, that will occur in our lives. That what we have is a gift in all of His provision And care. He is shepherding us as a good shepherd does, who cares for his sheep, who protects his sheep, who feeds his sheep. Ecclesiastes 5:19. We're reminded for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. What you have is a gift. And it's a part of your assignment, and it's a part of a way to glorify God in it. Be content. The grass is not always greener. doesn't necessarily always promise you something better. You will constantly be distracted and looking ahead instead of seeing what God has for you here. Be content. Number two, be strategic. Look at your circumstances currently. Look at where you've come from. If all of these steps that you've taken are the good providence and the good hand of God, then every one of those have meaning and purpose for the strategy by which you will reach nations for the glory of God. Every bit of it. If the Lord called me to to be a gospel light to Italian people in Italy, I'm going. I'm going. And I would look back on that and go, well, Lord, you did, you did birth me into an Italian family that has a lot of cultural heritage and importance there. Or maybe even your despair and your suffering is a way that God has strategically placed you in those situations so that you might minister to other people in those situations. He does that. He did it to the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote in, in he writes in chapter 9, we'll get to this in a couple years. To the Jews I became a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without law... Those not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Paul was this unique man. He had this amazing foot in both doors of the world that he lived in. This connection to the Jews and this connection to the Gentiles. That's what he means by those who are under the law and those without the law. And so he had an audience with the Romans and he had an audience with the Jews. And he was able to speak to them and he was able to relate to them and connect to them. And how did he do that? The good providence of God lined it right up for him. Like a plane landing on the strip. 
Exactly the way the Lord had planned when He chose to save the Apostle Paul from being a persecutor of His people to being a herald of Jesus' name. Be content. Secondly, be strategic. How might God use those things by which you have so endured and experienced so that you might be strategic where you are? The address that you live in, it's not an accident. How did God place you on that street? Or do you live on a street? On that farm? How did God draw you to that place? And in so, what is your purpose in that place? He wants to use you, be strategic, and being used where He has landed you. Lastly, be consistent. Every one of us is given energies by the Lord. Every one of us has been given responsibilities to proclaim and herald His glory. And therefore, we must be consistent or be faithful in the serving and the using of these gifts and energies to reflect Christ in our life. We don't just follow Him faithfully. We herald His name. All these things that we learn, we teach other people. All these lessons that we learn, we pass it on to the next generation so that they don't die with us, so that we're not the last Christian generation in our family or the last Christian Baptist church on this block, but that they are growing and expanding and flourishing because we're not containing it within us. We're learning and growing and, 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 and retaining, but we're also dispensing and multiplying for the glory of God. Let's be faithful to what Christ has called us to do in the places that He's, he's sent us. I'll close with 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10-11. through 11. He says, As each one has received a special gift... Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God might be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Be consistent. This is God's purpose and plan for us. I am thankful by His providence that He has brought you into my life by the grace of Christ. I am thankful to know your stories and to see His divine providence so that people all the way from Millington, from India, from all over this globe have been a part or are a part of this little bitty church in Bartlett. Because I don't believe I don't belong here, or I don't deserve to be here, but I do belong here. I don't deserve to be here any more than any of these leaders, any more than you do. But by God's grace, He has saved me, and He's called me to do this thing. This is my responsibility. This is my assignment. It may not be your assignment, but you have an assignment. You have a gift to use in that assignment, as Peter says, and you need to do it reflecting on the manifold grace of God who gave it to you 
to do it well based upon the gift that you've been given, not some other gift that someone else has, but do it as He supplies you strength and do it for His glory. And when we do, we will see the church strengthen, be faithful, and impact the world around us in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.